Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles. And today we'll be covering a mock exam for the programming and analysis division. Uh, if you haven't heard the good news with regard to Prometric, the testing centers, uh, starting June 9th here in 2020, all ARE tests are deemed essential. So this means that you can schedule an exam at any location uh, that offers quote unquote, all programs or essential only exams. Uh, so that was certainly really good news. Um, uh, spots are closing up. Uh, I believe that they are offering um, sort of reduced seating capacity. So that means that there's less seats available. So, uh, you know, what you want to try to do is uh, encourage you, we would encourage you to sign up as soon as possible to make sure you get the time slot that you're looking for. Um, uh, another note for everybody is that uh, NCARB updated their ARE 5.0 handbook um, last week or this week, earlier this week. Um, we've reviewed the changes and the good news is that there's no changes to content or any of the objectives. So the stuff that you're, um, you know, studying hasn't changed. Um, they've uh, really updated some pretty small items. Uh, so um, uh, let's see, they updated a couple of top uh, descriptions and two of the topic areas. Um, and, you know, they made uh, a little uh, longer break times and things like that. So uh, to see the specifics, we've posted sort of a summary uh, in our ARE community, uh, which I'll share a link. I think we just shared a link uh, here in GoToWebinar. Uh, we'll include it for everybody so that you guys can, can find it and, and review those adjustments. But the good news is there's really no adjustments to the content or, or objectives. For those of you who are joining us here for the first time, Black Spectacles is the first ever NCARB approved test prep provider. For all six of the ARE 5.0 divisions, we offer, you know, comprehensive test prep for the ARE. We've got video lectures that Mike has, uh, Mike has taught. We have practice exams, flashcards, virtual workshops. It's all available online with memberships uh, available either for individual architects or for firms or chapters or schools. So, um, one note here is that virtual workshops uh, are new. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about them. Um, for two hours every Sunday, we've organized group learning sessions that are led by licensed architects who've recently passed the ARE. They're really awesome. During these sessions, the instructor administers a couple of lessons that target the most difficult topics on the test. And then you get to work on the lessons in a group setting and get feedback from the group. And then at the end, uh, we always leave time for Q&A so you can be sure that, you know, if you have any outstanding questions, you can get them answered. So we updated our firm memberships um, uh, our expert membership includes virtual workshops, um, so you can check that one out. Um, and if you'd like to hear a little bit more about those and have your boss pay for it, so if you don't want to buy an individual membership, but instead you want your boss to pay for it, um, we're actually offering a webinar, a free webinar, um, um, uh, that, uh, let's see, if you go to uh, blackspectacles.com slash firms, uh, you can go there and it's actual virtual lunch and learn. Um, which you can offer for your firm, where we go over, uh, you know, the top tips to pass the ARE, tell you a little bit more about the program, and you get a learning unit. So, uh, if you want to learn more about that, and again, figure out how your 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 firm can pay for for access uh, with this free lunch and learn, just go to blackspectacles.com/firms uh, to learn more. Uh, those are the updates at our next ARE live broadcast on August 13th. We're going to switch things up a little bit. We're going to feature one of the exercises from the virtual workshops that I was just talking about. Uh, and we're going to do it for the PPP, sorry, I just said it wrong, the PPD exam. Um, and so it'll be great. You guys will get a taste of how the workshops run. You'll be able to learn, uh, you know, obviously learn from the exercise itself, get a little extra practice on the PPD exam. Uh, so I'd encourage you to uh, to sign up for that. If you go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast, you can find the link for that. Today, uh, we'll be engaging uh, for this uh, session exclusively in our ARE uh, community. So if you go over to community.blackspectacles.com, if you go to the second uh, post, uh, it says ARE Live um, in there and uh, practice, uh, goodness gracious, I can't remember what the name of this is there's so many of them, there's so many acronyms. It says ARE Live Programming and Analysis. There you go. If you go to that thread, uh, that's where we'll be answering questions. So if you have questions as we go through the session today, you can go there. If you're listening um, at a later date, uh, after the live session, you can go there. We're, we're, still, we're still engaging on that community. So at any time uh, today or otherwise, you can, uh, you can ask a question in there. Uh, and lastly, um, everyone who posts in our P in that thread on our community today, you'll be eligible to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt at the end of our session. So please stay tuned 
to the end to see if you win. And at the end, we're also going to offer a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships to share and help you uh, along in your journey. So we'll provide that coupon at the uh, at the end of the show. The show. Uh, my guest today is Mike Newman. If you don't know Mike, uh, he is a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's the instructor for Black Spectacles online area exam prep lectures. Uh, his new dog's name is Viola, Viola, I'm not sure which one, um, but uh, you can ask him, I suppose. Uh, and so uh, with that, uh, thanks for joining us today, Mike, and I'm going to hand it over to you. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll try to have Viola not make too big of an interruption. Uh, if you hear some clickety-clack in the background, that's her with her uh, overly long nails, uh, having not been groomed in a while, uh, uh, clicking away on the on the wood floor. Uh, all right, thanks, Mark. Um, uh, and she is the saddest looking dog you can imagine. It's, it's she's it's pretty great. Well, let's get um, her on this webinar, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So as Mark said, uh, we're talking programming and analysis. And the kind of interesting thing to note about programming and analysis is that it, uh, you know, as architects, um, we always want to jump right into design. And the point of programming analysis is actually that period of time right at the beginning of a project where you're not really designing yet. You're just accumulating information. And so you're pulling information from various sources about the site, about the codes, about uh, the budgets, about uh, uh, the client needs, all of those varying ranges of things. Um, and you're kind of getting them together so you can then be informed enough to then start uh, a real design. Now, every once in a while, there are sort of simple design things that you do at this phase, but that's really meant as a series of tools to help you make design decisions later or to have conversations between the owner and the architect, uh, something along those lines. So if, if the, one of the potential answers seems like, wow, that feels like it's really been designed already, uh, then uh, that's probably not the right answer for this one because that would really be something in the next uh, exam uh, where they're really talking about that kind of early phases of actual design, design development. Um, so you get a little taste of design here, but usually that little taste of design is about kind of giving you information in order to make better decisions later about design. Uh, so mostly about uh, ideas of analysis and programming, obviously. Um, but the wide range of possibilities. Uh, for example, you could get a question on soil types because you would need to know about soil types uh, in terms of uh, starting a design. Like, is the place that you're thinking where the building is going to go, does it have a soil type that would support that building in that location? So it can be a very wide array of possible questions but it's always about giving you information to be able to make better decisions about how the design's gonna work down the road. So let's jump in. We're just gonna take a look at a few different uh, possible uh, types of questions. All right, on this uh, first one, number one, um, which of the following are likely part of your zoning analysis for a new project? So this is uh, where you choose multiple answers, um, in this case, three uh, out of the six. And the question is about uh, zoning analysis. So um, I'm just gonna give the answers right off and then we're gonna talk it through here a little bit. Uh, so the correct answers here are going to be floor area ratio, permitted uses, and setbacks. Um, and now I'm gonna sort of talk a little bit about the question itself. Uh, one of the things when you start thinking about something like this is zoning analysis is actually different from and more specific than a site analysis. So if this said site analysis instead of zoning analysis, uh, kind of intriguingly, I would have included covenants and easements. And if it was a complicated site that maybe had limited access, I might even actually include egress. Uh, because you would need to understand how, you, you, how you'll be getting in and getting out in order to be able to make rational decisions. But it's not asking about a site analysis, it's asking about a zoning analysis, which means the zoning code and things that are only going to be found in the zoning code. So you have to watch out for those kind of specific uh, terminology pieces. So just to be clear, 
We were talking floor area ratio, permitted uses, and setbacks. Um, so, you know, when we start uh, thinking about this, um, you could pretty easily imagine, uh, like, how how those three fall into place. Um, I'm just going to describe floor area ratio for a quick sec, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Uh, imagine this is our site, uh, and then maybe there's the road, and there's a sidewalk next to it or something, and let's say that's uh, 10,000 square feet. And the zoning code for this particular district, maybe it gives you an FAR of, say, 1.0. Well, if it's an FAR of 1.0, that means the ratio, the floor area ratio, the ratio between the floor area of the building and the floor, the area of the site is one to one, which means that I would be able to build 10,000 square feet of building. Uh, that site is likely to have, may not have, depends on the situation, but it's likely to have some uh, maybe side yard setbacks. Uh, if it's a more commercial area, it may or may not have, it might have a front yard setback of uh, zero, it might have a front yard setback of five or 10 or 20. If it's more like housing, it might be 20 or 25. Uh, and then rear, depending again, what kind of neighborhood it is, uh, if there's residential around or whatever, let's just say there's a rear yard setback. Sorry, let me get the angle right here. Something like that. So that's the area that I'm allowed to build this in. And I've fi figured this out because I've looked at the permitted uses that are in this district. And yes, my the, whatever I'm building here is part of the permitted uses. Uh, I figured out the setbacks for this particular uh, district. And so I've uh, put those into my analysis. Uh, and now I'm looking at the floor area ratio and it's saying I can build anywhere within those dashed lines and I can build up to 10,000 square feet because the FAR is 1.0, um, which means we imagine a building that's approximately, I'll say that's roughly half that area. So a footprint of say 5,000 square feet. Well, then I can build two floors of that building. I can also build potentially basements because the basement doesn't count on the floor area ratio. Um, but uh, you can see that if I if I have a FAR of 10,000 uh, capacity of square feet and I can build a footprint of 5,000, it has to be two floors. If I had a building that where my footprint was say 2,500, then I could build four floors. So the whole point here is this is a way of controlling by the, by the city, the massing of the building on the site. So I can go tall, but I have to go with a smaller footprint, which is gonna allow sunlight and air to blow around the building more easily. But it's also gonna provide a longer shadow. I could build bigger, a bigger footprint, but then I can't build, uh, even though I'm building something big and clunky, I can't uh, have it go up as high. And so light can still get by it and air can still get around it and views can get around it. So it's a way of giving a little bit of uh, control to the massing on the site while still leaving a kind of general openness uh, to the architects and the, and the uh, owners uh, to fulfill the kinds of buildings that they want without damaging the uh, sunlight and views and air and all of that of all your neighbors, which is exactly the kind of thing that the zoning code is trying to do. It's trying to sort of balance between uh, the individual rights of the landowner and you know your design opportunities, balance that with the rights of the rest of the community and the direct neighbors and all of that. Uh, so. Uh, the answer there is we just demonstrated floor area ratio, permitted uses, and setbacks. But let's talk covenants for a second. Uh, every once in a while, you go to uh, like maybe driven through a gated community or something, and like uh, every house looks the same, with the same angle roof uh, line and the same uh, materials. Maybe maybe it's all brick or all wood siding or you know something like that. Um, that's because of covenants. So that's when somebody's, uh, it could be uh, industrial, it can be uh, business, it can be urban, it can be suburban, but typically the easy way to remember it is in like a gated community, because that's just, it's just so obvious in those places. Um, and so in that case, it's a, a full development where each uh, individual lot 
is being sold uh, to somebody to build the house that they want, but they have to build it within certain rules. So that sounds a lot like zoning, but it's not actually produced by the municipality. It's produced by the people who started the development, by the private developers. And so the covenant is a document that has a bunch of rules on it, like could be anything, could be material types, could be uh, uh, angles of the roof, it could be uh, view lines, coot corridors, stormwater passages, any number of different things could be in that list of rules. It might be a list of five rules, it might be a list of a hundred rules, it's all kinds of different uh, scales of these things. Uh, and it, those, that list then rides with the deed of that lot of land. So even though it's not a municipal rule, it is actually a rule that you have to follow because it's part of your deed. So covenants very much like zoning analysis, but they're actually not produced by the municipality, they're produced by a private developer. And then another one similar to that would be easements. So easements, uh, often you'll see, if you imagine, um, uh, you know, you have somebody who has a piece of land and just from some weird thing, their land is in the middle of a block of other projects. Um, and so there's no way for them to get a driveway to it. So they might uh, get an easement with one of the owners and says, all right, you still own that land, but we have the right to use that as our driveway to get to this land. Uh, that's a classic easement. Another kind of easement might be uh, there's uh, power lines going, cutting across a, a property. So the owner still owns the land, but the power company has the right to maintain and put this in. And so it's a deal made, it's a contract made between a landowner and somebody else. Could be a neighbor, could be a utility company, it could be an easement for view lines, it could be uh, any number of different things. But the point is, it's an impact onto the site, again, that rides with the deed. So that contract uh, goes, once it's signed, you can't say, yeah, you can put your driveway there and then sell the land. So they pay you, say, $50,000 for the right to put the driveway there. And then you sell the land the next day and the next guy says, yeah, no, I don't want you to put that there. The, the whole point of the easement is that that easement would ride with the deed. So if he did sell that piece of land, the easement would go with it. Now, not all easements are in perpetuity. Sometimes they have a timeline. You might be have an easement for a year or 99 years or something like that. Uh, but unless it says, then you would expect it to be in perpetuity. Um, so those covenants and easements are really similar to zoning analysis, but in fact are not the zoning analysis. They would definitely be part of a site analysis. Okay. Hopefully that made sense. I'm going to move on. So here's a kind of classic, uh, this is actually a riff off of a, an old uh, NCAR uh, practice question that they used to give out uh, a few years back. Um, and I show this one partly because it's actually telling us something interesting, um, but also partly as a way to start thinking about uh, when you're reading these questions, like what, how much information should you uh, bring into it? Uh, so, all right, question number two, the site plan is being considered for a new restaurant project on a beautiful site overlooking a well-known view to the Northeast. Uh, so since it says North is up, so North is that way, the view is presumably that way. Uh, on the topography plan shown, where is the best location for the restaurant? Here's the restaurant and it's 100 by 100. So let's just run through them. Uh, what, what if we put it uh, here at A? Well, the obvious problem here at A is that my view line is gonna bump right into that hill. Uh, so you should understand how topography works. Um, topography is one of those things that every single person I ever talk to about it says, oh yeah, sure, I know how it works and then they often get it backwards, um, thinking things go up or ditches go in and berms go out or whatever. Spend a few minutes, you don't have to spend a lot of time, but spend 10, 20 minutes going through how topography works because it'll make uh, your life easier as a professional, but also it'll make your life easier on the exam somewhere, probably on this exam. Uh, so also note, we generally think of topography as being increments of one foot. 
And if this was literally increments of one foot, well, I'd still probably be able to see right over the top of that. But this isn't, it's increments of five feet. And obviously we do that in places that have more topography, of, uh, you know, more rise and, and run, uh, then it just would be too many lines to put in one every foot. It would just get, you know, it'd be solid ink. Uh, and so you would do it differently. If you're doing a topography plan of uh, a mountain range in uh, Colorado, well, you might use every 25 feet or even every 50 feet or something, depending on the scale. Uh, so the concept is always the same, uh, but the intervals can change. Typically on a normal project in a sort of simple situation, it's probably a one foot interval, but it could be two, could be five, could be whatever. It could be six inches. I had one that was six inches once. Um, so the problem with A, because these are five foot intervals, that uh, hill over here is blocking the view. So how about uh, B? What do you think about B? Got a pretty good view there. That seems reasonable. I can probably get most of the view there. The problem with B, and this is gonna be the part that's gonna make you a little nutty, is that it's in the valley and therefore it's exactly where the water runoff is gonna to wanna to go. Imagine you're the water runoff, you're gonna to wanna to use this line right through there. You know, you're going flowing right through there. And if you chose B, you're essentially choosing water problems. Now, clearly, we don't know really anything about what kind of restaurant it is, how much money they're gonna spend, et cetera, et cetera. Like maybe that would be a great place and you build it like a little bridge or whatever. As soon as you start thinking like that, you're bringing too much information to the question. The question is asking you fairly specific. It's giving you a few different things to think about and it's giving you a topography plan. And then one of the things that topography plan tells you about is where does the water go? Uh, the other thing it tells you about is where you can see from one place to another. It also tells you where things are relatively flat and easy to build on. That's what you're working with. You're not bringing all that other level of design to it. B is not the answer. It would be a constant problem with uh, uh, how you got stormwater around it and all that. Uh, I'm gonna jump to D. Uh, D is great because it's a nice flat area. So it'd be easy to build on. Uh, but obviously I'm looking right at the hill, uh, so that's not gonna work. I might have a really nice view this way, but it didn't tell us that. So D's no good. The answer, there we are, C, do that so it's clear, uh, has nice easy views. It's in a relatively comparatively flat area on, compared to say this area, uh, and uh, it's not in the water flow. Uh, so it's a positive from all the potential ways we could think about it. C is the logical answer. Uh, like I said, it's worth spending a little bit of time with topography. Everybody always thinks they already know it, but often you don't. So just try a few practice runs. Uh, start imagining like if you were putting a, you know, let's say you have uh, some topography uh, and it's going downhill this way. Uh, and you wanted to put a ditch into it, well, then you're going to be thinking about how that topography looks something like that. Right? So you want to get used to how you would do that. How, you, how can you change topography? Uh, not that it used to have on the exam an actual topography uh, uh, vignette. Uh, these days it won't be that, but you should be able to recognize what's working and what's not working. Where do you expect the water to go? Uh, can people uh, traverse this uh, from an accessible uh, path range? Like is the angle too much? Uh, all of those kinds of things are things you can figure out in a 2D plan with the topography on it. And yes, I know that sounds ridiculous to do this thing um, because clearly you would be thinking more about the design, but that's what the exam is like. So it's worth thinking of it in this way. Okay, number three. In the first analysis of the initial plan sketches for a new 12-story high-rise uh, high office building, you calculate the building efficiency by comparing the net area to the gross area. You hopefully find the ratio to be, and then we have four possible answers, 72%, 96%, 12%, and 55%. Um, so we're talking about uh, an office building here. Um, so let's just do a quick plan of an office building. Just, just 
make it up as we go here. So maybe I've got a little elevator lobby. Uh, I've got a couple elevators next to it. Maybe I've got some shafts next to that. And then maybe I've got a stair. And then I've got, uh, let's say, men's room and women's room. And then maybe I've got another stair over here. So there's my core. And then I have the tenant area around here. And, you know, included in the tenant area, there's probably some columns, various points. I'm not going to draw all the columns, but you get the idea. There's some columns around. So the net area is essentially the area for the tenant. Uh, and so, you know, all of this area, that's all the net area. The gross area includes not only the net area, but the stairs, the bathrooms, the lobby space, the elevators, the shaft space, the uh, other stair, the columns, uh, all of those at the thickness of the walls. So the gross area is everything. And when you're doing a square footage count in order to uh, have a conversation about the cost per square foot, you're going to use the gross number. But for something like a uh, high rise, they're going to be the owner is going to be very interested in what the efficiency ratio is, which is going to be that net to gross. So if I can compare how much of the footprint of the building uh, is going to be rentable that I can get money back from because I'm renting it out to somebody, uh, then that's going to be great. The, so the higher percentage of the footprint on each floor uh, that I can uh, be renting, that's going to be uh, the better situation. Um, the uh, lower that percentage is, then I'm obviously going to have tremendous difficulty. Like if I, uh, if I have a very low ratio, that means I'm not getting much uh, rental income for all the square footage that I'm building. building. Uh, so the answer here is going to be essentially out of these choices, 72%. It could be 65%. It could be 84%, maybe. I think maybe a little higher than that's plausible, 86, 87. Um, but if you saw somebody and they said they had an efficiency ratio for a 12-story uh, high-rise office building and it was 96%, like there's just no way. Look at all that stuff that we've got. We've got columns, we've got stairwells, we've got elevators, we've got lobby spaces, we've got the shafts and pipes that have to go through, we've got bathrooms, we've got there's all kinds of stuff that's going to be in that core building that's not going to be part of the, the rentable square footage. Um, and so it's just not believable uh, for that 96% uh, uh, to be possible. Uh, if it was 12%, You'd be like, whoa! What's the what's the point of building anything? Like, we're not getting any rental income uh, out of this. Uh, and I'm saying rental just because it's an easy way to imagine it. It would still, even if you were building the building for yourself, you'd want to know how efficient it was in terms of getting work area for your own company. Uh, so it's definitely not the 12%. Uh, 55% uh, might be a good number for say a hospital or something where you need lots of extra space in the corridors and things like that. Uh, there's a lot more public spaces because there's gurneys and there's uh, just a lot of other kinds of things around. So the number might be reasonable for a different kind of use, but not really for uh, a, an office, a 12-story office building. Now, kind of an interesting thing to note here is the reason that you would be thinking about this at this early stage is because you'd be probably talking uh, in those early design discussions with your owner about, well, is this a single user per each floor? Uh, then, okay, that's pretty clear, right? We can see pretty easily what's part of the gross and what's part of the net. But what if you actually had this um, as, say, uh, I don't know, three different tenants? Well, then you're probably going to be doing something like if this is that lobby, like we talked about, the elevator lobby, it gets you to the bathrooms as well. I'm probably going to do something like that. Where I'm adding a little bit of corridor space so that uh, tenant three can get into that corridor and get to 
that stairwell and they can go through the elevator lobby and get to that stairwell. Tenant two can get to one and two, and tenant one can get to one and two by going through that lobby. So in this case, even though it's the exact same building design, we now have a lower efficiency ratio because we need to be able to get everybody to the exiting and to the lobby. Uh, so it's a discussion that you're having. This is a tool for saying, well, we can get a 80% efficiency if it's uh, one tenant per floor, but when we look at the market studies, it looks like uh, the, the market that's out there, the people you wanna be renting to need to have uh, smaller square footage than that. So you're probably most likely to have multiple tenants per floor. Therefore, that ratio is gonna go down to 75. It would be part of the discussion about whether this is a viable building or not. And the other thing to say is, just because it's more efficient doesn't necessarily mean it's the better building. If you're doing a building for somebody and they want to be very showy, maybe they want a really big, beautiful lobby, well, that big, beautiful lobby is going to impact its efficiency. Uh, and so it may be uh, an important thing to do in sort of making their presence felt on the street and be seeming like a, a good place to move your company to, uh, but it's going to lower uh, that extra scale is going to lower your efficiency. So it's not necessarily that one is definitely better than the other. It's just a tool for thinking about one of the aspects of when you're putting something together like this. The other thing to notice is that these uh, this terminology, this efficiency terminology, is uh, very useful with multifamily housing and with uh, high-rise office, especially tenant high-rise office buildings like this. It gets a little murky in some of the other building types. Like I mentioned, hospitals, like is a corridor really a corridor? Or if the corridor is being used by nurses and nursing stations and uh, uh, patients are you know, practicing walking after a surgery up and down the corridor, is that really a public space or is it actually part of the uh, the patient room space. Like it gets a little murky. Um, so you have to be a little careful, not just applying these numbers sort of in a simplistic way. You have to really think about what it is you're trying to get across and then also be clear about that with other people. Another one that gets confused a lot is like warehouses. Uh, you know, if you think about warehouses from one standpoint, like a picture in your head, like a, you know, an Amazon warehouse or something, this is a bunch of corridors all over the place, but those corridors are actually part of the main function of that space. Uh, and so it's probably close to the 96% most of the time. There's maybe some bathrooms and a few other, some columns and uh, mechanical spaces and things like that, but not much else. And so those tend to be very high, but in other warehouse situations, those corridors might actually be actual corridors. And so you have to be really careful about it. But in multifamily and in office buildings, it's a very simple and useful uh, terminology. Another quick thing to say is don't get, I've been sort of interchangeably using net with tenant. There actually are different meanings um, and uh, different locations around the country will use different uh, square footage numbers for um, actual rental, rentable space. Um, like one, I forget which one's which, Boston is goes to the window pane and uh, New York goes to the paint or something like that. Um, so just note that the, when you're actually talking about the rental square footages, you have to be really careful. The uh, net and gross is really more of a tool for uh, kind of thinking about the design. All right. That was a great one, Mike. A lot of questions uh, about uh, you know about that on the on the ARE community cool. right now uh, being answered. So thanks for that one. That's a good one. Okay, number four. While doing a site analysis for a new multifamily project in Denver, you do some quick calculations in Googling and find that the solar azimuth and solar angle for June 21st at noon is, uh, and then we gotta like make a guess. Um, so let's think about this for a second. Um, the azimuth is, where the like if you imagine the sun if you sort of stood in a field and then looked at the sun you would be able to see well i'm looking at a certain angle up from the horizon and i'm now facing at a certain angle from true north so those two angles place the sun in the sky without having both of them i don't really know where the sun is but understanding both of those two numbers tells me exactly where that sun is compared to where I am right now. 
So the azimuth is the comparison from a cardinal direction. So in this case, north. Uh, azimuth, if you say azimuth uh, without defining it, it usually means from north. So the kind of standard is that you're looking at it from the north. Um, but sometimes you'll see people use it in various ways. They'll say uh, azimuth off of south uh, is five degrees or something like that. And that, that where you're, you're in a more fine-tuned moment, you don't really need to constantly be going back to north. But uh, the sort of classic understanding in the northern hemisphere is that you would do it off of north. I believe in the southern hemisphere, you do it off of south. I think everything flips. Um, so taking a quick look through, um, we can figure this out pretty easily. So the azimuth is how far, what the angle is from north, and the solar angle is the angle for what it is from the horizon up. Um, so by looking here, we're going through this, uh, we're talking about noon on June 21st. So June 21st, that is obviously the solstice, or very close to it, sometimes it's the 22nd. Um, so the solstice means it's at the uh, kind of highest uh, point in the sky, but it's also at noon. So where is the sun uh, at noon? Well, in North America, especially uh, in the United States, uh, it's going to be essentially due south. It might not be exactly due south. It'll be a few degrees off depending on daylight savings and a few other uh, things. Um, so right off the bat, even without looking at the uh, solar angle, we can tell that the answer is D because the azimuth is 180 degrees from due north, which is south, which is where it would be at noon, really any time of the year. Um, and then just to sort of think about it a little bit, the angle being at 74, that sounds pretty good. So I'm just going to do a quick little sketch of this. All right, so here's our building. There's north. Uh, in the winter, so here's east, south, there's west, uh, in Denver or anywhere in North America, in the winter, the sun is going to rise a little bit south of due east, and it's going to set a little bit south of due west. And so there's the sun path in the winter. So if we did December 21st, which would be the winter solstice, we would follow that path. In the summer, it's going to be a little bit north of due east, and it's going to set a little bit north of due west. I'm, I'm not being super accurate here, just getting an idea. So that path is going to look pretty similar, a little different, but pretty similar, but uh, starting and ending in a different location. So that tells us something. At uh, noon, uh, we're going to be roughly there in the summer and roughly there in the winter. Both of those are going to be uh, the 180 degrees off of north. But now let's look at the other angle. So here's our little building. There's our winter angle. coming in, and that's probably about 30 degrees or so. I uh, I didn't actually look it up for Denver for the winter, but I, it's, it's probably 27 or 30 or something like that. And then that winter, I mean, excuse me, summer, it's gonna be high in the sky. And so that sun is at a very different angle. And that angle is 74. It's not exact, it depends a little bit on a couple things, um, but it'll be approximately 74. So you can see there's a huge difference between uh, that summer angle and that winter angle. And one of the reasons that in the pr programming and analysis phase you'd be thinking about this is, well, that's gonna have a pretty dramatic impact on how much solar gain you're gonna get into the building, uh, where the uh, like patio wants to go? Like, do you want the patio to be in the sunlight? Well, yeah, in most of the country, probably yes. 
maybe not in Phoenix, where it's going to get a lot of sunlight a lot of the time. So you would understand the location and be able to analyze where the sun is in the sky at different points in time. Also to understand where the shadow is going to go, a uh, whole series of those kinds of uh, elements. So those two ideas, the azimuth and the solar angle, are going to be able to tell us where this is. Obviously, in the winter, when I really probably do want uh, that solar gain, having that low angle allows me to get light coming right in through the windows. Uh, and in the summer, when I don't want it, I can do like a little canopy or something and bounce that light uh, right away and protect uh, my big windows from that solar gain. So just by analyzing this, I've already started thinking about something like, well, maybe we should have uh, awnings on the south side or some other brise soleil of some kind that blocks that sun. Uh, there's lots of different uh, impact that understanding this can have at that early phase of the design thinking. Okay, we're moving on. Number five, at the beginning of a hotel project, the project architect tasks you with the daunting task of determining a preliminary cost estimate to use for discussions with the owner uh, as the design activities commence. What is the most likely way that you would go about this task? A, the assembly system, B, the unit system, C, full line, full line item estimate, and D, the architect should never do a construction cost estimate. That is the contractor's job. Um, the answer is not D. Uh, there are plenty of times when the architect does uh, the uh, just does an estimate. Um, it's not always called an estimate in different parts of the country. Estimate has slightly different meanings uh, contractually and legally. Um, so sometimes it has, you know, um, I, I'm blanking on the other terms they use, but you'll see other euphemisms for estimate. Um, estimate is really technically when it's a, a more detailed thing done by somebody doing a very detailed system. Uh, but uh, the classic sort of B101 standard AIA architect owner uh, architect agreement, the assumption built into that is that the architect will, at the preliminary phase, have an understanding of what the budget is and therefore what the cost is likely to be. At the end of schematic design, we'll produce a simple uh, cost scenario, uh, maybe a range of possibilities. Um, but yeah, they are putting together a cost estimate at the end of schematic design. And the point of that is to make sure you're not going way out of bounds. Um, at the end of design development, uh, you might be asked to put together uh, a slightly more detail because now you have more information. What kinds of materials are the building going to be made out of? Uh, how big it finally ended up being? Uh, how many square footage? Of, what's the parking lot look like? How much is that going to cost? How much? We have a lot of extra landscaping. Uh, you, you know, by the time you're done with design development, you have a pretty good idea of what's going on. And so you would be able to do a more detailed version uh, of um, the cost estimate. And then by the time you get to the end of CDs, the contract documents, typically you don't do an estimate because that's now when we bid it out, we're going to get the estimate from the contractors. Now, any smart architect actually does their own estimate at that point anyway, just to be sure. Um, I never do because I'm not a smart architect because I just never have the time. Uh, but if you're smart, you would do your own just to make sure you're on track. Um, but technically, you need to have something at the very beginning uh, to help start the project discussion with the budget. You need to have something at the end of schematic design, and you need to have something at the end of design development. Now, I just did a uh, signed a contract a couple days ago. We're doing a project with an owner that has somebody on staff that is, is an estimator because they do a lot of projects. Uh, and so we just crossed all that out from our uh, B101 because it just didn't make sense. There's no reason for both of us to do estimates. He, he doesn't want to pay us for that and we don't want to do it if uh, if somebody else is going to take care of it. Uh, so you can have a contract, you can make a contract that includes it or doesn't include it, but without changing the contract, the standard B101 would assume that you would be doing that. So now the question is, which one? Um, the full line item uh, estimate, that's referring to a full bid. 
there's zero chance you would have any enough, you wouldn't have anywhere near enough information at this early phase. You haven't even designed the building yet. Uh, so you just don't have enough to have line items. You don't, you know, is brick in the line item or is it uh, metal siding? Like who knows, like you haven't designed it yet. So it just can't be C, that's just impossible. So then the question really is between A and B. An assembly system is where you, you go and find um, the one, the sort of classic one that you'll see referenced all the time is the means, uh, like mean, but with an S, means. Uh, the old means books and there's the online website for means, there's tons of other options now, but means used to be the, the sort of go-to one. Um, and it, they have all of these sort of uh, this information that they've cataloged over the years. And so an assembly system says, all right, we've designed it enough to know that we're talking about a brick veneer wall with a, a CMU backup and some insulation and the floor system is uh, flexicore, precast concrete and et cetera, et cetera. And so you have these various systems that you've figured out, a wall system, a floor system, a roof system. And then you can go in and look, well, for a two-story building uh, with this kind of wall system uh, and this kind of uh, uh, floor system, then it'll give you a square footage number that you can then use. Um, uh, or it'll give you uh, a linear foot number for that type of wall. And then a square footage for the floor and a square footage for the roof. And so I can figure out all of these different assemblies and then add them together and get a pretty good pretty reasonable idea of what the cost is going to be. I would then adjust it because the the wherever that data is from, uh, if I'm building in uh, Manhattan, I'm gonna, it's gonna cost more, I'm gonna take it up a certain percentage. If I'm building in a place that's very cheap, maybe in the sort of rural south or something, I might uh, be able to bring that number down. So I'm gonna adjust it from those, those numbers, but the assembly system is when I have enough information that I can get a pretty accurate but still generalized from, you know, kind of rules of thumb and getting information from third-party sources. Unlike the full line item, the full line item is where you're going through and calculating out each individual line item and making a number for that. So it's not A. A is what I use when I'm at the end of uh, design development. The answer is B. Uh, and there's kind of an interesting thing. Specifically, you'll note that this is a hotel project. And what do you know about hotels? Well, hotels are um, unitized. Uh, you know, it, you might, if you're saying, well, how big a hotel is it? Your answer would probably be, well, it's 100, 100 rooms, or maybe it's 500 rooms, or it's a 10 room hotel. And you would know a lot about what was going on in that project by saying, yeah, it's a, if you're talking about a 10 room hotel, you have a very different idea in your head about what, how big a scale of construction this is, what the costs are gonna be compared to if it's a 500 room hotel. So the fact that it's a hotel and the hotels have these, these rhythmic uses, now they might have some smaller rooms and some larger rooms, but you can still talk about it fairly generically, especially early on in a project by saying, yeah, it's a, it's a hundred room hotel. And so the unit size in this context um, is actually talking about the unit is hotel rooms. You might do the same thing with say classrooms, a, a school building because uh, the series of classrooms, these days classrooms getting a little funky because there's a lot of new classroom designs with uh, studio spaces and all kinds of other things. But, you know, in the classic sense of, uh, you know, a, a junior high school where you've got a corridor with uh, classrooms on either side, you might be able to do an initial estimate by saying, all right, this, is, this, this school is going to have uh, 30 classrooms. Uh, I can find a multiplier times that by 30, and that'll give me a sense of how big because uh, it'll include enough numbers to cover the corridors and the cafeteria and all those other things. Well, same thing with the hotel. Uh, there's going to be a restaurant. There's going to be a lobby space. There's going to be a fitness room. Uh, there's, you know, a few other things. And that's all going to be included in, in that number. Um, so kind of thinking about it, you know, the first thing you would probably do is find in the unit number uh, some examples that give you a range uh, to start thinking about. Now, I actually don't do uh, hotels. I've never done a hotel. So I, I don't really know these numbers uh, personally. I'm sort of remembering back to talking about it a while ago. So my numbers may be off, don't take these as gospel. But if you're uh, doing a kind of, um, uh, let's say an upscale, uh, upscale hotel, 
you might be in the range of say 400,000 per uh, hotel room. So let's say we're doing uh, 100 rooms. So then we have a rough budget of 40 million. So that 40 million would cover the lobby, the corridors, the, all that stuff. You're just using the room, the number of rooms as a way to sort of kind of divide it up. And uh, so you can easily have a conversation with the owner and the owner says, well, you know, we don't think we have 40 million, but we like this sort of basic idea. Maybe we need to drop down to 80, you know, the uh, 80 rooms still works with our pro forma. Now we can understand the scale that's appropriate, right? Uh, so that's kind of an upscale. Um, and then, you know, some other numbers I might get, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe a mid-scale might be about uh, 150,000, so times 100, what's that give us, 15? Uh, you know, so you get kind of a range, like uh, this allows you to have a conversation with the owner. Maybe you show them various pictures of, uh, you know, a five-star hotel versus a three-star or two-star hotel, and they can kind of place themselves what they're aiming for on that spectrum. And then that gives you an idea of what, what set of numbers you would use. Uh, you might also take these numbers and say, all right, we're going to do not just an upscale, we're doing a five-star hotel in the middle of Tokyo, very expensive place to build, or the middle of Manhattan, a very expensive place to build. So we may have started with the 400,000, but because it's super high end, we're actually going to go up. And because it's an expensive place, it's hard to build there. Uh, there's lots of uh, rules and, and uh, tight uh, spaces. It's hard to, to do all the logistics and and all of those extra costs, you know, you might be talking 800,000 uh, per per room. So you would start with a rule of thumb number, and then you would adjust it to the situation that you know, and you would use that as part of your conversation with the owner. Make sure you're what you are thinking is the same thing that they're thinking. Get everybody onto the same page, and so you're using this process as a way to get uh, to the same point. Um, now. If it was the places that uh, I used to go to when I was a undergrad backpacking around Europe, um, those were probably about, I don't know, $10, uh, maybe <laughs> times 100, and it's about 1,000 maybe. Um, I can tell you, this is where my wife wants to go. Uh, I usually <laughs> try to go right around here, maybe a, uh, 200,000 per, per unit, something like that. Um, but obviously you can see there's a range, there's like, you, this is a tool by, by how you think about this. Now, some of you might've chosen unit system thinking what I meant was square footage. Well, fortunately you would have gotten the same answer as well. Square footage is actually a totally reasonable way to approach this as well, because it's a hotel, there's a sort of a signifier there that what they're probably looking for is that repetitive nature of uh, of the space, like the classrooms, like um, I'm, I'm blanking on some other ones, but I'm sure there's other examples. Um, but square footage would be another way where you might say, yeah, this is we're going to build this very high end, um, but also people are going to abuse it. hotel rooms. People abuse those pretty badly. So something that might be relatively high end at say $300 a square foot, uh, that's going to put this at 400, 450, maybe 500 a square foot, right? So that would be another way to kind of get a rough justice number uh, in this context um, to be able to have conversations and make sure we're in under the budget, et cetera. All right. Thanks for Mike. Uh, thanks for that, Mike. Um, <laughs> I liked your comments about uh, which hotel you like to stay in. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, so uh, I have one question here. So there's a lot of uh, sort of a flurry of activity here on the ARE community um, right now, and uh, a lot of people are providing a lot of answers. So there's actually not a ton of questions. One that I thought might be helpful um, on question number two, Mike, maybe we could go back to that slide for question number two. Um, one of the folks who posted Anastasia here, she said, um, for question two, I still feel like uh, option D or location D would be the best location for the restaurant. Can you explain 
a little bit more why C is the best spot. And there was a little debate about the right answer there. So I just wondered if you could clarify, Mike. Yeah, so, C so versus D. When, you, when you see um, topography, this, you know, one of the things for um, young architects to, to grasp is how, like what does topography mean? And the reason that it's hard for young architects to grasp is because it's almost never actually talked about in uh, schools. Um, and so you mostly don't have any experience with it. Um, the, the reason that B is a problem is because uh, what the topography is telling us is where the water is going to go. There's only a few things that topography really tells us. One of the things it tells us is what can we see from where, right? Obviously, if you do a section of the topography, you can figure out, can I see over that that mount? Can I see to the to the uh, beautiful ocean view, the beach view? Uh, uh, does uh, does the hill get in the way? Does the other building get in the way? Um, so I use topography to figure out view lines. I use it to figure out uh, air, making an area a building area that I can build on very easily. Um, I don't want to have a very steep slope if I can help it. Now, obviously, there are many important and beautiful buildings that were built on very steep slopes, but it's not saying that. So you're assuming that you're trying to use the topography in the sort of natural way that you would uh, uh, get information from it. And the other big thing that it's telling you is that uh, the water, when it rains on this site, the water wants to drain in a specific way. And if you decide, no, I wanna put the building right in the middle of that. Now, as I said before, you could decide to design it as a bridge or something like that where it spans right across. It, that's that's beyond you're designing at that point and that's not it's not an appropriate place to be designing that that detail um so what you're saying is you're putting it right where that storm water wants to go so what's going to happen to all that storm water right i mean there's a reason that there's a gap gully here and that reason is because that's where the water goes um and so, I mean, it's eaten away the other elements, and so that's where the flow of water is. So now, all of a sudden, I have to figure out a way to get the water around the building and go without it damaging my building. And I'm putting this uh, structure right where uh, the water is going to be most problematic. Uh, so I only have a few items that I can use to define because they're not giving me any others, and that's one of them. And so B is a problem because of that. Uh, it's always a problem if your first reaction is, let's completely change the, the, the way nature works on this site. Um, like it just, you're, you're leading to expense and complication. Um, I get, I agree, like I could imagine building anywhere on this site and finding a way to make it interesting and useful. That's, we're architects, right? We can, we can make it work any of those places. That's not really the point. The point is sort of what's the what's the logical place to go? What's the best place to for efficiency, ease, uh, still getting the benefits of the view uh, and making this happen easily? Like obviously there's a bunch of other issues, but they don't give us enough information. Like where's the road, right? Uh, how close to a, a city are we? Or, or is this a dense area or is this a, a totally rural area? Um, you know those kinds of decisions. Those kinds of that type of information would also affect us, but they haven't given that to us. So we don't, we're not using that in our discussion. We're only using the view, the way the topography works in terms of uh, uh, drainage, the way it works in terms of uh, steepness and ease and efficiency uh, and, you know, whatever else we can gain from, from that one drawing. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. All right. Good deal. Well, uh, as, as I said, uh, we got a lot of people answering questions here on the community to the questions that have been asked. So uh, that leaves you and me with uh, not much else to talk about other than to say thank you uh, for, for putting this together for us here. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. As I mentioned in our next ARE Live podcast on August 13th, we're featuring one of the ex sorry, we're featuring one of the exercises from our virtual workshops, uh, and that's going to be for the PPD exam. Um, so this will be great because you'll get a, a taste of how the virtual workshops kind of work. Um, and also you'll get some, uh, you know, some valuable um, experience, again, uh, tackling uh, topics related to the PPD exam. I just posted the link to register in the chat box in the GoToWebinar control panel 
uh, or below this, uh, you know, this episode. So you can check it out there. Um, or you can just go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast to sign up. To learn more uh, about all of our ARE exam prep offerings, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of our course videos. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the lucky winner, uh, or we're going to have a lucky winner uh, of a Black Spectacles t-shirt, and that is uh, Jamie Alexander. So congratulations, uh, Jamie. We'll reach out to you via email to get your size, uh, t-shirt size and shipping information. And just a reminder uh, uh, for everybody else, if you'd like to be uh, eligible to win a t-shirt uh, at our next ARE Live episode, uh, please post a question. Uh, you have about the mock exam in our ARE community during the next uh, episode. Uh, for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, uh, thanks for tuning in. And as a, a way to say thank you, you can use the following coupon code, which will get you a 15% discount for the entire duration of your Black Spectacles ARE prep membership. And that code is PA071620 PC. Um, so you, again, you can use that for a 15% discount. Uh, thank you to Mike uh, and thanks everybody uh, who submitted their questions. Finally, tomorrow we'll email you a follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you think uh, and share any suggestions that you may have. I promise we read every word that you guys write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm.